As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The world is racing to get back to normal. We all want to meet up again. But after a year of being locked down, it takes time to get back to normal. When we are going through things, we tend to turn to our friends to talk to, but they don't necessarily give us the best advice. We all need help from time to time, and asking for support is a sign of strength. It is not weak. Help is available immediately through Talkspace, who will match your needs with a licensed professional. You could get the help right away. Start feeling better with a single message. Match with a licensed therapist when you go to Talkspace.com and you will get $100 off your first month if you use the promo code SEAN, S-H-A-U-N. That's $100 off when you use the promo code Sean at Talkspace.com. This is one of James's all-time favorite books. James <laughs> and Joe, our cameraman and sound engineer. We have got the author, Jason Farrell, in here today. And I'll just have a look at the back. In the past few years, the UK has seen an unparalleled rise in knife crime, youth violence, and school exclusions. Vulnerable adults and children as young as eight are being tooled up, trained as drug mules, and sent to all corners of the country to assist in county lines drug dealing. Our mission statement on this channel is end the war on drugs and take all of those resources and use it to go after predators. Because the war on drugs has created this. If you've watched our interviews with our Leap Cops, Simon McLean out of Scotland, Neil Woods, and more recently, uh, Suzanne, then you will see from the perspective of the police, even, they know all this is wrong. Everything's upside down. The system needs some dramatic changes because the drug traffickers, it's an arms race, Neil Woods said, where they have to innovate. And county lines is part of the innovation to combat what the police come up with. It just goes on and on and on and on until so it gets more and more out of control. Anyway, thanks for coming on, Jason. That's okay. Yeah. So prior to the filming then, you said there was something in Suffolk called the scoreboard. Um, we're going to get into that in a second. But what, what made you write this book? I've been, as a journalist, looking at county lines for quite a while. I'd done a lot of, um, I'd done a small documentary on it where I'd gone in and, crack houses and met some of the people who were running the lines met some of the mules and then the publisher basically approached me um but the the thing that interested me and the way the way that i start the book is all these interwoven lives 
and the way that um, it might be a dinner lady living in Yorkshire whose son suddenly goes missing or um, you know a, a young girl who's living in a care home who gets kind of invited to go and deliver a package to Southampton um, or it might be some guy who's uh, um, an Iraqi Kurd who's a refugee who gets hooked on drugs and then becomes a kind of enforcer for the drugs there's this, this whole crazy industry that is worth half a billion pounds in this country and oh okay <laughs> yep i feel like i'm eating it now i don't have to eat it yet. no push, this, it, push it down a little bit so it's not in front of your okay, face there okay. we go there's this whole you know this is whole crazy industry and all these credible characters caught up in it and and um, what really struck me was i was doing a report one day we start start the book with it where i was trying to look at how much cocaine was being consumed in the country. And I went to meet this guy who, who tested water samples. And we were talking about the amount, we could work out how much um, cocaine was being consumed in London by the amount that was basically being pissed down the toilet. Oh, that's because, interesting. Yeah, so you can yeah. work out from the, from the byproduct and then take samples from the Thames wow. and figure it all out. Wow. Um, but one of the other things he was doing as well was he was looking, he was asked to look at pesticides in the countryside. Um, and what they do is they're trying to find out whether farmers are using illegal pesticides. So they go to these tiny little tributaries and streams around Suffolk, get the shrimps and see whether in the shrimps there are any pesticides. And when they put all these shrimps into this, what's called a, I can't remember, a spectrometer machine <laughs> that they use. Shrimpometer. The shrimpometer machine <laughs> to test the, the, what all the substances are in the shrimp. The most common substance that they found in these shrimps was not pesticides coke cocaine oh my god <laughs> the second the second most common substance was the cutting agents that are used for wow. cocaine so this wasn't just um like you know the main river running through ipswich this was the like the little tributaries in the small kind of rural backwaters <laughs> of the Gipping River in Suffolk. And it just so happened that when I was doing that, uh, talking to him, he mentioned this place and I thought, I've just been to a murder in Suffolk, or I'd, I'd just been writing about this murder in Suffolk, which was all connected to county lines, drug trading, and just the idea of this connection between these shrimps stuffed with cocaine <laughs> in the backwaters of Suffolk <laughs> and this horrific murder of this, you know, this young lad, you know, that there's a connection there. And that's the thing that really fascinated me, the way that all these lives somehow getting sucked into this business that is, let's face it, getting out of hand. So I've got to ask this, you hear about the rats in Rat Park getting high off the heroin water with the shrimp getting high, high off the coke in, in this... Suffolk water. Like, we don't know what their mental state was. <laughs> I mean, obviously, when they're in the laboratory, they've been dried, so they're not high at all. They've been dried out. But as they're living, what it, you know, these these shrimp uh, it, it feed on a diet of whatever's sitting in the silt of the of the river. Yeah. And the concern was, what's this going to do to the ecosystem if all these pesticides get into all these. Uh, all these small animals and funnily enough they did another study which i think they did not just shrimp but other you know worms and other things and found the same thing so yes the pesticides are bad for the shrimp but i imagine the cocaine isn't doing, <laughs> doing them any favors either 
What about the Wii then in the London uh, area? Well, what, what was the analysis I'll tell of the you Wii? what's interesting about that. So it, what, they, what they've done is they've done these tests in countries and capital cities around the world. And um, London is way above any other capital city in terms of the amount of cocaine that is, 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 in, is in the system. I can't off the top of my head tell you how much it is. But it's this, you know, it's significant. We we what we did was we we went to a flour mill to kind of give ourselves the rough idea of what it would look like a day's amount of cocaine, and I can kind of show you. It's it, it's it's a big cone of about if I were to stretch my hands to either side, it's like that. If you were to pour flour into that, wow. and of course that's not including all the cutting agents and everything else. That's pure cocaine. So that's yeah. London's daily use. Good grief. And then, use. yeah, yeah, extraordinary. And um, what's but what's really interesting is that London, um, over sort of the last sort of five years, has sort of plateaued. It hasn't gone up. No one's particularly caught up with them. But what they have done is that, for example, they do a test in Bristol, and Bristol's uh, cocaine use has gone up fourfold. I think it was the, the amount. That they were finding in the rivers in a roughly sort of four or five years so there's been a massive increase in bristol and obviously we don't do these tests in these tests aren't done everywhere and i did try and see if we could get them to do the tests in other cities but it takes you have to get everyone on board you have to get the water companies on board if the council on board and so on and so forth so they weren't able to do that but imagine if they did do the tests in you know, in Ipswich and in, you know, Bury St. Edmunds and any, any of these towns. And what it shows is that the drug markets are probably moving out. Mm. London plateaued. And that's what, Saturated, that's been the experience of the gangs and the kids in London who are selling these drugs. Mm. And we've seen this increase in knife crime on the streets in London where there's lots of crossover and people are getting stabbed and the, it's getting more and more brutal. And essentially what County Lines is, is an extension of that brutality from London to the suburbs, the villages, the the the, the smaller towns and cities. So yeah. um, that's actually that strange water test mm. actually shows us what's going on in the country. Yeah, I love a book that has like the interweaving stories of people who are affected by the same thing, uh, like Chasing the Screams, one of my favorite books. So. These characters, then you said, like the co-home girl, the dinner lady. The, are those stories featured in the book? Yeah. So I, I, each chapter is a different story, and each story tries to represent a different aspect of the industry. So um, the first uh, chapter is called the Mummy Mule, and this is a woman I met uh, through a contact who was transporting drugs on a line from London to Southend, mm. and she's getting into it because her son is involved in the gang and her son has has persuaded her that he's at risk if he does it so the best thing that she can do is kind of do it for him and that will help him out i just described it as a bit like a student coming home and getting mum to do the washing it's it's coercing motherly love uh, to try and get you to um you know take a bit of the grief that he would get for having to go and do this and she's terrified you know she's absolutely terrified she goes um with with, with bundles of, uh, of drugs, you know, t uh, taped up and she drops them off to the, to the trap houses and gets out of there as quickly as she can. And she doesn't, you know, I said to her, how do you feel being a drug dealer? And she said, I'm not a drug dealer. 
And it's like, well, you you are <laughs> kind of part of the system. And she goes, no, it's ter it's terrible. And um, but brilliant camouflage. You know, the police would would be unlikely to stop this fairly respectable looking mother. Doesn't look like your average drug dealer. And I think that's the way that um, these kids have sort of become quite useful to the gangs. Is that you know they 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 don't you don't doesn't you wouldn't think that a twelve year old is is carrying a big bundle of drugs and so they're quite useful as as mules and the other the other um uh drug mule i met was a was a young girl she was 16 at the time i met her but she was 13 when she got sucked into county lines and she was living in a care home and hmm, just give me a dry mouth there yeah yeah she was living in a care home and she was just asked by Oh, I'll take <laughs> put Next. that down there. Sorry, she was asked, you know, to to start doing deliveries, and on one of her first deliveries, um, the money, the drugs get stolen off her, Ooh. and of course, it's the classic uh, tactic. She she loses the drugs. She has to go back to the boss and say, "I'm I'm really sorry," you know, and he's he stabs her. He says he stabbed. She stabbed. She was stabbed in the bottom. Um, which apparently is quite common, I understand, because it's um, seen as not going to be fatal if you stab someone in the bottom, but you can cause a decent enough injury that someone's not going to be able to sit down for a few days. And um, So that's quite a common thing to do. She was stabbed in the bottom, and um, you know, and then she's debt bonded. Now, you're going to have to work for us until you, you, know, you get the money back. So that is quite a common mm. way of getting people involved. So yeah, so she's then... Um, sucked into it and she suffers all sorts of things including um, being a young girl sexual abuse mm. and so it's her story is quite a tragic one actually and and after I interviewed her um, I know that she still you know she still struggled and for a while she ended up in a mental institution so the mental the, the mental impact of the kind of stuff that's going on is something you know we shouldn't overlook yeah, this, that's happening to these young kids because this is not normal what mm -hmm. these kids are going through yeah. and actually if you think of the old gang structure mm. as it used to be on the estates or something like that the one thing that might be said for it is that these kids felt like they were protected you know that they were in a gang you join a gang and it might not be ideal but you feel like at least you've got some family um someone who you sort of perhaps it's a misguided decision to join that kind of a family but at least they are potentially going to look after you and one of the the first people i interview in the book is a drug dealer who's just works on the broadwater estate and he used comes from that old school style of drug dealing and his point was that's gone there's no love anymore is the way he put it um it's all everyone's almost for themselves and this is a this is an industry now. It's it's about you know the the, the gang business is really, um, it's about it's not about bringing people in. It's about sending them out. Uh, it's about you know you're much more alienated, and these kids being sent to towns, you know, miles away from their own homes, from their own friendship circles, and all that sort of thing. Actually, they're incredibly exposed. Um, so the advantages of the gang network were, were there any in the first place, but if there were some, those don't exist anymore. And this is a much, much harsher environment that these kids are now living in. 
So we've got a lot of people watching in America then. We probably don't even know what county lines means. Mm. How would you define it? Actually, really, it's about the phone. Mm. It's about a phone network. And all it is, is it's a branded phone. It's a phone number that, um, and perhaps the best way to um, explain it is to go into some of some of the, well, could go into some of the examples in a minute. But basically what it is, is a uh, guy goes, has a, has a, um, has a, a, a supply of drugs. He goes out uh, to an area that he hasn't been to before, picks a town, taps into the local drug market, maybe by getting some users to recommend some friends. The phone number gets shared around and then he sets up a satellite dealership in that area um, and then runs a kind of, it's almost like the Amazonization of the, the drug industry. So now you can ring up rather than having to go down and find your dealer on the street. You ring up, you call it, call a takeout and the guys, the great advantage obviously for the guy in London or in Manchester or in one of the big cities is that they, they're, their footprint isn't really there. Once they've been up there, they've set up their business, they've got kids doing the, the dropping off for them, they might have coerced the local drug dealer to work for them. So it comes with a, it comes with a, a, a level of a, at least threat and intimidation because you have to take over the local market. And what a lot of people in the police say is, um, because this brings with it additional violence, it brings with it exploitation, it brings with it lots of unknowns, a drugs market that you can't control, drugs coming in that you can't necessarily control, um, the quality of them or know, know exactly who's behind them. It makes policing a lot harder. So actually, rule number one for the police is to try and get things back to how it used to be, you know, to try and, the, to try and beat this system of using these, these networks of phones. But it has, so what it's done is over... So the last sort of three or four years, it went from about, there were about sort of 300 lines. Then there was the following year, there was like 750 lines. Then in 2018, I think it was it, it, the back end of, it jumped up to around 2,000 of these lines. So it was massively growing. At its peak, it was around 4,000. Over lockdown, there has been quite a lot of police activity and they have managed to crack down. So there's probably around about, um, I think there's around 600 lines at the moment. Still a lot. But they have had quite a big crackdown on it. So what's the legal advantage of using a kid? Well, legal advantage is that you um, you can say to the kid, you're not going to get as many years because you're a junior, you're a minor. So in fact, you're not even potentially committing a crime. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is the, the, legal, the legal area is very, very interesting on this. For, for, the, for the drug dealer, at least, they can say, look, you're 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 very unlikely to get a very big sentence for this legally you're um you're not as much risk as i am the older bloke um secondly obviously if you're using kids you're less likely i mean one drug dealer said to me i'd never use kids because they'd dob me in but actually from experience and what i've seen from police investigations the quits kids stay very quiet they don't seem to speak out against who their handlers are um and even in one case where there were like 10 kids they couldn't get a single one of them to speak out and say the name the handler even after the handler was arrested they couldn't get one of them to speak up in court it's good 
they're terrified. And so there's another advantage. No one's going to dub you in. It seems like if you can run a level of fear over these kids and, you know, somehow these kids seem to think that this is going to be a great life for them and they can get, you know, if they're not, they've not got much at home, um, they can get, you know, nice trainers, they can get nice stuff, um, all the, all the gear and, you know, earn money quickly over the summer holidays or whatever. But actually from, again, from looking at when kids have been rescued from trap houses or whatever, they're not living the life. They don't have cool trainers and stuff like that. They're usually in the clothes they left their home in. And a lot of the time they are literally wearing the clothes they left home in um, and living in absolute squalor. Mm. So there's nothing in it for the kids. I mean, they really, um, you know, they really should know that. It's not, it's not the El Dorado that they think it's going to be, but that's what they're sold. That's for sure. It's a form of modern day slavery then. It is. And so the really interesting, the, I think the really interesting when this was realized that this was modern day slavery was this case called the Castro line, which was in Lincoln. And what happened was there were these two addicts and they bought some drugs off these two kids in town. These two kids were like skinny runts. I mean, they, they looked so young. They thought, well, let's just, let's just rob them, get our money back. So they go to rob these kids and the kids pull out knives, stab, stab the, and really bit badly stab these two addicts. So then they're in hospital and they're practically on life support, these, these guys. And the police interview them and say what happened. And they, they just, they don't want to say, they don't, they don't admit to who's, but the police get wind that there's these two kids in town. So eventually they, um, through sources, discover that these kids are staying in this local house. And they raid the house. They find a bloody knife. They find wraps and drugs and stuff like that. And they interview the kids and the kids don't say what's going on. But it turns out they've both gone missing from Birmingham. So the kids go back home. And at this point, the police officer involved has seen the conditions in which these kids are living and thinks, I, I don't see these guys as criminals. I see them as having been exploited by someone. The parents have said they've gone missing. They've actually come from homes that have reported them missing. You know, they, they didn't, the, the parents didn't want their kids to go. And so something weird's going on here. So what they decide to do is they put a surveillance on the house. And then this guy turns up in a car and um, he's obviously got the key to the house and they decide to follow him and sure enough a couple of weeks later he's got two more kids in the back of the car and so they keep an eye on what's going on and they decide even though they can see these kids are now selling drugs to go on a surveillance operation see what else they can find out about this guy and turns out he hasn't got insurance on his car so they stop the car and they um say they're stopping him for insurance, impound the car, but actually they don't send it to the impound, they send it to forensics. The forensics team find a Bribina bottle in the back, which has got DNA of the kids who they just rescued. Mm -hmm. So they've got that. Then they find the phone, which all the local drug dealers, drug users are on it, who are referring to this phone as the Castroline. The only thing that's not in it, it doesn't have the SIM card in it but they can use the body of the phone to find out 
So they know this guy is running what's called the Castro line. And they then rescue these other two kids that he's just brought up to town. And again, you know, there are knives in the apartment. They're living in absolute squalor. And again, the police officer thinks these guys are being trafficked. But now the guy hasn't got his car anymore. And so they, they just keep watching him, see what he's doing. He's using taxis to deliver the drugs. He's using the rail network. And then they keep an eye on the missing persons program in, in Birmingham. And sure enough, a couple more people go missing. And then CCTV picks him up with them getting on the train to Lincoln. So now they've got nearly everything they need. They raid, this, they raid, the, uh, they raid the address, they rescue the kids, and they arrest him. And for the first time in history, they go, the Modern Slavery Act has in it of 2015 Section 45, it has a, an, a, something about coercion. So if you're coerced into doing something, you can use it as a mitigating circumstance for why you committed a crime. And they said, well, how about we change that? So it's not mitigating circumstances. We actually say it's not just the, that it's mitigating for the kids, but actually we can use that to say this guy was committing an act of modern slavery. And so rather than go after the kids, they, they slump another charge on this guy of modern slavery. And he actually eventually admits to it. And so he gets an extra seven years on top of the five years he got for the, um, the smuggling of the drugs. So that it was the first case in which they said, actually, we need to think about this and look at how the kids are being treated and say, okay, they're not actually the perpetrators here. They are the victims. And that changed the face of it. After that, you know, there's been a whole load of um, police operations where they've rescued hundreds, hundreds of children over the course of a week of operations from addresses. And, and in each case, they said, we're going to treat these guys as victims. Now, the only downside to that. It's the legal advantage again, isn't it? Of using it's the legal the advantage. Place? So the, guy, the guys can say, well, you're not going to get arrested. You're a victim so we'll, you're Yeah, a you're victim a victim of modern day slavery. Yeah, so you get you get out of jail free. You've got to jail, get out of jail free. <laughs> and with the Castro line, one of the kids they rescued in the third property they raided was the same as one of the kids they rescued in the second property. So this, you know, this is a it's a very, your whole legal question is an absolutely fascinating one because at what point as well, if that kid then coerces his brother into doing it or his mates at school. Does that kid then become no longer a victim, but part of the problem? And that, you know, that then brings you into the whole other world of when do you get to these kids? How do you stop these kids getting involved in the first place? Because um, that, 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 you know, that's the fundamental question here as to why these kids think that they're going to, it's worth their while to go and sell drugs in a town they've never been to before with strangers and living with drug addicts. Um, why, what's the appeal, you know, and what's going on in their minds just to think that's a good idea. So, but it, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, very interesting area of law and it's, and it's changed very recently. And for people watching this, if you didn't see our podcast with Andrew Wallace, who helped to bring in the Modern Day Slavery Act so that's in the True Crime Podcast playlist if you want to follow up and see what Andrew went through to get that introduced. 
And it's interesting to see how it's been exploited by the traffickers because it just, again, it's um, part of the arms race. And I believe personally that the solution is to legalize and decriminalize drugs, starting with weed, because weed is the most consumed drug in the world. Weed is what's being dealt the most in this country. And it's absolutely ridiculous that all these countries around the world are legalizing and decriminalizing. Yet we're not, yet the politicians who are maintaining this have probably done it themselves. It's, it's just an absolute bullshit, double standard hypocrisy. How, what are your, how do you feel about that? About legalization? Yeah. Well, I mean, your point about everyone taking it um, was um, certainly, and when you talk about cocaine, you know, the, what we were talking about at the beginning, the river, the river tests in London just show you the amount of it washing around. Um, and I think you mentioned some police officers you've spoken to. I think I know Neil Woods. Neil Woods. I've spoken to him on the phone, and the point that he makes, or he made to me, was um, we can arrest a drugs gang um, and can you know spend months taking them out, and within a few hours or <laughs> a day a day or so someone will jump into their place because the market's there um and i think certainly um from what i've seen from say for example drug spaces in glasgow where there's a big heroin problem um things like consumption rooms where you say let's do this in a safe place let's um let's accept that these you know these people have an addiction and we need to help them through it i can see i can see strong arguments for that like in portugal yeah yeah exactly portugal have done it very effectively and it's brought down i mean glasgow currently has the you know the highest death rate for taking drugs in europe i think Is probably it? in the world wow. yeah 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 um and um, it's a staggering, and it's and it's gone up, and it it's it's a staggering number of people who die from taking drugs in Glasgow, and uh, and they need to get on top of it, and they know they need to get on top of it, and they're trying to um, lobby the Westminster government to um, to to have more consumption rooms for 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 heroin. I mean, the other argument I can see supporting your case around marijuana is. You know that is quite a big chunk of the illegal market trade. So if you were to take that out, you suddenly make their business less profitable. And I think you know one of the things that has probably fueled the growth of county lines isn't just mobile technology, although that is massive. Um, but it's probably also just the fact that so certainly in the cocaine market, it's got you know the drugs got cheaper, um, more people can afford to take it. Um, so, um, you know, so it's it's no longer kind of like the choice of bankers and the middle class dinner parties. You know, it's it's an everyman drug now. And if those everyman drugs are out, then something like weed is part of the illegal black market. Then it's just a bigger market for them, isn't it? So I I, I, I can understand it. I'm not sure I have a kind of. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Strong view because I still think that weed, um, certain types of weed, talking to GPs I know, um, you know, certainly the stronger brands of skunk can lead to psychosis and all sorts of problems. So legalizing something that can cause psychosis and, and serious mental health problems, I, I concern about. I think also having seen some of the people recovering on... Um, uh, various drug addiction groups and stuff like that, what they have to go through again, is it the right message to send out to them that uh, that drug is legal? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a policymaker. I wouldn't like to have to make that decision, but it's I can a, see your argument. It's minimizing harm, isn't it? Because you can't stop people taking drugs. No. And in terms of the really strong strains, I agree. But wouldn't it be better to have the government controlling that and people knew what they were getting then rather than it being on the black market and all the criminality around it. Well, I think, you know, I think that's, um, with, with, with weed, you're talking about the kind of, um, the model in Holland, aren't you? Yeah. Where you can go into a shop and you can, but it's kind of weird, you know, because it, that, that, I mean, it is, that is such a big part of the culture, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's almost like it's a tourism thing that people will go there so that they can go and smoke a reefer in a, in a cafe or something like that. And but the young big, people big, of, of uh, Holland are very low uh, weed usage, don't they? Because all the adults are doing it and it's not cool to do what the adults are doing, is it? Well, no, this is it, isn't it? So what, the real way to get rid of a problem is for one generation to do it and then the other generation will kind of go, you guys are so uncool. I think that's happening with alcohol and yeah. And my kids look at us and go, what are you doing drinking all that wine? Yeah, <laughs> don't blame them. All right, so what about then the enforcement side of this? You said earlier about foot soldiers and someone for, from Iraq, was it? Oh, well, I was talking about, yeah, the, the guy I met from Iraq was a, was a hitman. And he hitman was from a, Iraq? Yeah, yeah. And he got- what was, what was his story then? Where we called him handsome because he was, well, he would have been rather- dashing looking chap actually <laughs> except that his face is completely ravaged um by years of taking pretty much everything yeah. um he'd ever taken and yeah he was an enforcer for drug debts and things like that um and he's told some pretty horrifying stories um yeah so, so um he was born in iraq then born in iraq came over on a boat how old uh he would have been back in his 20s when he came over and where did he establish himself uh, Tottenham, Tottenham, Tottenham area, yeah, um, and became um, just someone said, "Do you want to try a bit of this, a bit of that?" Um, and clearly had an incredibly addictive personality and became addicted to pretty much everything. Um, and he, because he'd come through what was then the um, what do you call it? Um, uh, in Sangat, the um, where the refugees—I've uh, forgotten the name of the place—we call it the, um, the the refugee camp in the forest on the other side in Calais. Yeah. Um, and he'd lived he'd lived in in that refugee camp for a while. 
And that was kind of one of the trafficking routes for people, but also guns. And so he was a gun smuggler and he would be able to traffic people. Actually, he talked a lot about trafficking people out of the UK, um, people who wanted to avoid um, the authorities. He, he said he did that quite a lot, um, but he also was involved in um, putting people in the backs of lorries. And you know, if you're doing that, then if you've got a room for a few guns and stuff like that as well. Um, and so as a guy who could then get hold of guns, uh, he was then seen as someone who could be used to um, intimidate um, people. And so he would, and you know, again, use of technology, um, the, he'd put trackers on cars and things like that to follow people um, who he'd be, and he'd be sent a picture on Snapchat of the person he needed to go and beat up or whatever. Um, and, and, and that's what he did. And, you know, he was someone who had been through, um, you know, captured in an ISIS style, um, camp where he'd been held captive for six months. So he'd seen some bad stuff and had been shot in the leg himself before as a punishment. Um, so he'd had some pretty brute he'd had a pretty brutal upbringing did he tell you what he saw in the camp he i think he spent a lot of time in a cell so he mostly heard stuff mm. um and he heard people being beaten up and um he i mean it was just kind of it it was an, it was an islamic fundamentalist group that captured him um and he escaped um, so he was uh, How did he escape? Iraqi Kurd. He um, he, I believe, kind of got into the back of a truck and hid in this truck that, wow. that drove off and he got across. Yeah, and he got he got he managed to make his way. I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure how he did it. He got his he's got his way into Turkey, and from Turkey got on a boat to Italy. Um, and somehow made his way up um, to to Calais, and then got himself in the back of a lorry to get to the UK, and ended up in London. I mean, it's a heck of a journey. Um, but he says nothing killed me off more than the drug addiction, you know. And he actually almost he said, "I love this country. It gave me an opportunity." But at the same time, you know, I'm. Yeah, the weird thing was he, you know, his his view was that drug dealers should go to prison for life. You know, it's, he was, you know, um, uh, and yet he was part of the system. You know, he said the system's too soft. So the system too soft on us. You know, we should. You know, I guess he had a. By this stage, he had an eight-year-old kid, and you know, he was thinking of his kid, and he said, "I don't want him to grow up in this world." Um, but. Um, yeah, so that was him. What enforcement stories did he tell you? Well, I mean, he told me, um, he didn't tell me, <laughs> he, he, he didn't, I'd, I'd asked him if he'd, if he'd um, shot anybody. Yeah. Um, and at one point he'd said he'd shot, he had, but then he sort of said no comment, but he'd definitely beaten people up with baseball bats. Wow. Yeah, he was, like, he was that guy. You don't want him knocking on your door. Yeah. 
So did you interview people who were recipients of violence? Um, I'm just trying to think. No, I don't. Well, I mean, obviously, I had the, the woman who was the girl who was stabbed, stabbed. in the in the bottom. Um, I interviewed the family of kids who'd been killed in gang violence, um, and um, you know, got some of their stories. And I have to say that a lot of the time it was pretty trivial stuff that led to the violence and i think a lot of the time when we look at the kind of violence going around now in in london and elsewhere we try it we associate it with drugs but often it's it might be people who are associated with drug dealing but often the reasons behind the stabbings and the beatings and the murders can be really trivial stuff um and one of the one of the stories I tell in in this book is about a guy who moved up to um, Ipswich to run a county line there, formed a relationship with a gang of guys who were also kind of drill artists, music artists, and they were a rival gang with, they were called um, J Block and there's a rival gang called Nino. And what he didn't realize perhaps he was signing up to was a kind of rivalry that would eventually put him in prison for 15 years because he was involved in a murder where six people just basically sprung out on this guy from a rival gang. And there were six of them. And who knows who stabbed this guy and or who crashed him over the head with a bottle. But they all went down. You know, I think five of them went down for murder. Maybe the, the, um, there's one guy driving the van who didn't, um, but he was, he was an addict. Um, and the story there was basically, it was about music. It was partly about music. So it was about the fact that Jay Block sang about being the big guys in Ipswich and how they were going to, you know, beat up Nemo. And Nemo sang about how they were going to beat up Jay Block. And then one day, they, the, the town's too small for that. You know, of course they're going to cross paths at the local cinema and the local shop and then um one day this gang gets the cool guys from the sing the song get chased into this soap shop have you ever heard of lush yeah okay well if you've got like young children they you know you buy like cloud-shaped bars of soap and mm. bath bombs that you can make <laughs> your own so if you're a cool drill artist the last place you want to get <laughs> look caught hiding out from you know the other gang members is a little soap shop and these guys are, are are basically chased into the soap shop and are kind of cowering behind the soap bars when these other lads come in to beat them up and even worse for them is the whole thing is broken up by an undercover cop and they all get a ticking off so these guys who are really renowned in the town as being really cool and the top you know guys to not mess with have had their reputation completely destroyed by this moment in the soap shop <laughs> and so they um yeah so they go back and get all their gang together and say right we're gonna have to get revenge go into the rival territory pick off the first guys walking down the street who happens to be this guy called tavis spencer and beat and stab him to death what the hell yeah chase did, him up the street did he have anything to do with anything he'd been in one of the other videos uh -huh. 
I mean, literally, he was working that day as a car mechanic. It's nothing to do with what happened Ugh. in the town. And, and it all comes out in the court case. And the funny thing is that, you know, they all turn on each other, the, the guys in the dock, because there's little bits of evidence against each of them. So they're like, no, it was him. No, it was him. And they basically just condemn each other. They're all at the scene. They all mm. put each other at the scene. Um, and, and, they, and they all go down for murder. And that's just, you know, it's, it's, tr it's trivial. And yet it's tied up in the fact that these guys, is it tied, it, it, it's tied up in the fact that these guys associate with a gang, that their gang sell, maybe sell drugs in a certain place. But it's almost not even that. It's just, you know, they want to look cool and their reputation has taken a hit and now they need to do something about that. That's the level, that, lead, that can lead to a murder. Wow. If you want to know what more about drill rap, watch our podcast with Skengdo and AM in the True Crime Podcast playlist. So who was Uncle? So Uncle was the first guy I met. In fact, probably really the only guy I've ever met who's running a county line. And I have a very good um, fixer um, based in Tottenham who um, put me in touch with um, Uncle. And... The reason I call him uncle is because that's how he refers to himself when he's recruiting the kids. You know, mommy and daddy can't give you what you want. Come to uncle. Mm. Wow. So uncle's in. Uncle really explained to me how the whole system works. So I went to meet him in his trap house. He's got his, you know, he's got, he's got his rolled up, rolled up money and his drugs on the table and his Rambo knife. And he's got the whole, he's got the Rambo knife there. And he's got a, he's got a, he's even got a uh, client in, in with him who's giving some uh, crack to. I know you, I'm, you can tell I'm not from the street. <laughs> right? I'm not here because of my lived experience. I'm here because I've met lots of people and I've, I've researched it from an independent perspective and got to know these people and understand what they're doing. Did but I'm not. I'm not from the street. Did you ever think about smoking crack as part of your research? I, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I'm having to watch someone do it. I'm having to watch the guy. And the weird, the stupid thing is, this is the really stupid thing. If you're going in to go and interview someone who's smoking crack, don't wait until they've smoked the crack to interview them. Get the microphone out real quick. Because, so I'm interviewing this guy and I'm saying, how's, how's it feel? And he's like, great and so, so how do you feel right now i feel high yeah okay so tell me about you know why you do this and of course by that point i'm kind of losing him and it he's like, just doo -doo 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 -doo. yeah he was just uh, just he was just going off into stratosphere but it's, it's interesting you know he yeah, the of the crack the people who were taking the crack they spoke to i couldn't find anyone to express any regret in the moment that they were doing it you know, I do this because, but then when you say, well, what do you regret? Well, I suppose I regret the money. Mm. I suppose I regret the fact that I basically spend every last penny I have on money. And then it's just for me to look at them and go, well, I regret for you that you look like a ravaged, aged beyond your years person who's never, ever going to achieve anything more than the high that you're getting right now from the drug that you're taking unless you can do something about this unless you can somehow get off it but there's no way with uncle standing here supplying you <laughs> and taking your whatever small wage you get off you that you're ever going to be able to do that 
But then her <laughs> uncle and his friend, when I interview them, obviously I don't want to, I don't want to know what they look like. I don't want the cameras to know what they look like because um, I'm filming them. And, you know, you could get a police injunction and say, hand over your footage. So I make sure that we don't know what they look like. So they're wearing these masks and they're these sort of bug-eyed masks. They look <laughs> like Doctor Who characters almost, you know, as they're dealing the drugs. But at one point, I remember feeling quite intimidated because I'm just asking them more and more and more about the business and about, you know, um, he's telling me how he recruits these kids and he sends them to, oh, I keep putting the bottle on there. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm terrible. I'm messing up the joint. And he's talking about, you know, recruiting them. He says he sends them to boot camp. So boot camp is wherever they go in the, yeah, in the, it's just like he's running X Factor or something. And in, in the suburbs or wherever it is where he introduces them to, to the various people um, who they're going to sell to. And then what he says, you know, once I've set them up and given them everything they need, then I, uh, they're off there on their own sort of thing. And then I was talking about what if there's a rival gang, well, then we give them knives and they go and sort it out, you know, and it's all this sort of stuff. And I said, do you ever get rivals coming in? And as soon as I start to talk about the threat to his business, he gets really pumped up, you know, and he's getting quite agitated. And then he just <laughs> unsheathes this knife and says, <laughs> doesn't matter who you are, you know, if you've with me, you, you're going to get it. And then looking, and he's looking at me and I was like, well, I'm, I mean, the one thing about being a bit of a posh asshole is that, you know, people look at you, they don't really feel that threatened by you. You know, I'm not, I'm not that threatening really. So I can, so the obvious thing to do when someone's holding a knife and saying, if you mess with me and all of that is, is to, is to do an Oprah, which is why I call it an Oprah, where you, you, you suddenly huge, huge empathy this must be really tough on you you know living like this and then he sits down he goes yeah you know, things I've seen and so he goes from <laughs> oh, you know I've so messed with me to God yeah I've seen <laughs> I've seen pregnant women smoking crack and you know and, oh, and you know so that, then it, but but all you know any the dogs who bark the loudest are the scared and, and yeah. you know that anyone who's who's hyper vigilant like that mm. who's really really hyped up he doesn't know who's going to come through the door next mm. you you just uh, you know there's a story behind everybody's the reason why they've become like that and they do genuinely have you know not a sob story but a but a re, you know a reason why they're in that position mm. and um and so i you know i'm willing to i'm willing to listen to that as well as the machismo of the yeah, we're going to send the kids knives and get and stab our rivals because behind all of that is, of course, deep insecurity. <laughs> <laughs> How does one go about arranging an interview with Uncle? So it's my fixer. Um, you have a fixer. I can't. Well, not a fixer. I a friend. Um, I, I I credit them in the books. It's a, it's a, a, there's a woman who runs a. Um, charity called Raising My Voice Foundation called Never Has Come Out. And she has a great um, um, empathy with the community. She was, do you remember the story of Baby P? Yeah. In Haringey, abused child. Yeah. She was the social worker who blew the whistle. Yeah. So I first got to know her through that. Um, and we've kind of, 
remained friends. And if I've needed to kind of, and in news, get a case study of someone who's living in difficult accommodation or it's just certain things, or I want to speak to a gang member or something like that, she knew, usually knows someone because she will help them with their parole or she's, um, you know, they've got some problem with immigration. So she's there for them. They trust her and she trusts me. That's that's it. And she, I very tragically, um, she has a she had a daughter called Azra, who was a young, sassy, beautiful woman who um, who grew up knowing all these kids on the street. And um, she was my sort of second go to for I certainly met some of the runners that I spoke to through her. Um, a couple of the dealers, the mummy mule who I referred to at the beginning, she she knew. Um, and so she was really helpful when I was first, really not making the book, making the, the documentary. Um, but sadly, she died last year. She was in a, uh, an accident, a very bizarre accident in which she, um, a fire, her car caught fire in the middle of a, a road coming back from um, Brighton. And uh, she was with another guy and she jumped. Um, she got, they got out of the car and they, uh, she jumped across the carriageway. And you know, like those carriageways where there's a gap in the middle, mm. but it's late at night, you can't see the gap. And there was just a, the weird thing is, I've nearly done it myself once at a protest where I jumped across the carriageway to try and get on the other side. And I've seen someone do it as well at the same protest where you think, oh, and suddenly you fall down the middle. Yeah. She fell down the middle. She fell down the middle, yeah. And she died. Holy shit. Yeah. Very, very it's strange. Terrible. Very terrible. Well, I mean, it's all very, very strange circumstances. And I don't, I don't know the whole thing. And there was a whole inquest into it. But yeah, so she was um, um, my... She was one of my kind of key mm. fixes, if you like, contacts who just um, it was great fun, always knew what was going on on the street. And um, I guess because she was kind of just, she was just so no nonsense. You know, she'd just go up to someone and say, who's stealing the drugs around here? We need to speak to some dealers. We'd arrive in South End and we'd go, right. I'd, I'd be going off talking to the homeless people or whatever and saying, she'd just go straight up. Right, come on, tell me where, where are they? <laughs> where, who's, who's dealing the drugs? <laughs> and I go, okay, well, it's this guy. Okay, well, come over here. <laughs> um, yeah, so she was a force of nature um, who we've sadly lost, but she was one of my very, very, she was very dear and she was, uh, she was a great character. And so, yeah, that is how, through uh, Azra and Nevers, I was able to um, make contact with um, people involved in this business. So was Uncle masked up when you went to yeah, no interview idea. him? Yeah, I know he's, I know he went back into prison. Oh, he's in prison now, is he? I think he's in prison now, yeah. I was going to wonder if he, was, if he would come on the podcast, but if he's in prison. Tricky. Okay. I'll find out for you if he's, if he's out. All right, so you've met some of the runners as well. Yeah. Have we talked about them yet? Well, I mean, I've talked to you about um, Lucy, who's the one who's running Southampton, who got stabbed. And I talked to you about the mummy mule who was going to Southampton. And there was another, there was another very, um, the, 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 the dinner lady I was telling you about at the beginning, she, her son 
was a runner. And that was an interesting story because, I mean, she's just, uh, you know, she had a normal family, normal, lived in a sleepy village um, near to, you know, in sort of Yorkshire, um, you know, not not particularly um, near to any major towns, actually. Um, and she, Harrogate was the, was the nearest town. And um, her son um, just started going missing. Mm. And this is this, you know, these are the kind of telltales. Obviously, that's pretty, pretty shocking sign. But she was saying he just became a little bit more detached um, to start with. And he'd be going down the skate park and he'd be kind of hanging out there, but she wasn't sure why he was hanging out there. And obviously it turned out that he met some guys who were coercing him, suggesting he would, you know, should go and make a few deliveries and that sort of thing. Um, and he um, then just started going missing. And so she'd be going out at night looking for him. And, um, and then one night, um, he'd been missing for about three or four days. And it was like near Christmas, you know, this is a young kid. And why would a kid go missing over Christmas? You know, mm. this is, and he'd been sleeping under this bridge and he was um, absolutely out of his face on drugs. And she found him and she was in the car and he basically just tried to push the car. It was absolutely wired up. She describes this you know, literally kind of jumping out of the, trying to push the bonnet. And, um, and, Eventually, she uh, she got she had to kind of get him moved away. So she um, she got him sent to another part of the country in order to kind of get away from this. But of course, that you know, if you're in that mentality by then, then it's quite difficult. But they did manage to um, through a pupil referral unit because um, obviously he got kicked out of school. Um, but through a pupil referral unit, work with him and turn his life around and really? i think yeah wow. and i think you know it's like a lot of these kids and when I, when I meet them you know really what they want is a bit of opportunity you know they're just it's this 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 is just the opportunity that presents itself to them right and i said to her what was the what was the thing you know that helped you know helped him she said well he was really into fashion <laughs> and you know the thing that he liked about the drug thing was, well, maybe he could afford to buy himself some good clothes. Um, but when we, you know, showed him that actually he could even maybe work in the fashion industry if he just kind of, you know, did certain things in his studies, he, he got an apprenticeship with someone and that's all he needed. He just needed that opportunity. Um, and he's a smart kid. And most of the kids I meet who do this, that's really what they want. I mean, I'll never forget this guy and I did this documentary on gangs years ago um and this guy in america um in los angeles who was uh, this pastor who was running this project called homeboy industries you ever heard of this mm -mm. it's really brilliant it's really brilliant it's it's like you go into this factory in the middle of this downtown los angeles and i'd spent about uh, three or four days with the police going around all the really really nasty areas and seeing quite nasty stuff and then but the, some of the scariest guys I've ever seen were basically working on these printing presses, doing T-shirts, and they're working in this factory. And um, he had set up like a set of factories and um, coffee shops and just businesses that 
only employed gang members. <laughs> and he said, I did it because just I just buried my, he was a pastor, he, I buried my thousandth gang member or something like that. This is when Los Angeles was like Vietnam, you know. It was just more people dying there on the streets than in, in any American war, you know, <laughs> from, from, the, from just um, MS-19 and people like that coming up and with really military hardware and just trying to, you know, take over the streets. And, um, and he just said, well, you know, nothing stops a bullet like a job. <laughs> I thought it was such a good expression. Yeah, that's so true. You know, just give these guys some opportunity. So I know it's radical. I know it's radical, but you know, how about we give these guys a chance? Give them a job, give them some opportunity. Um, and I think that ethos of just, uh, you know, okay, he got in late with these guys, but if you could do it young, if you can give people hope and, and, and wherever I go, uh, you know, when I've been doing these stories, often you find it, you know, you, you're, you're going to uh, schools or pupil referral units where there's been problems, stuff like that. And it, the solution is always opportunity. It's always hope, isn't it? We've got to address the root causes, yeah. Yeah. What about when you're out with the cops and you said you saw some crazy things? What did you see? Oh, what, in Los Angeles? Yeah. And what year was uh, this? Oh, what year was this? This would have been about 2000 and. Seven two thousand eight. Okay, yeah, and I decided to do the thing on gangs, and um, I just had in my area. I was living in Camden at the time. Mm. <clears throat> been a big gang killing. Uh, this a Somali kid had been stabbed in the neck, and I'd witnessed it. I'd seen it happen, and I thought I really want to look into what's going on here. And I looked into Somali gangs in Camden, and then I said, Well, I want to look into all the other gangs. So I had a little look at Manchester and what was going on there. And then um, Glasgow, where again, different thing again. It's like the gangs in Glasgow, they're out of the gang by the time they're 15. You, you know, well, this was before they had a real crackdown and they managed to sort out a lot of the problems in Glasgow. But they used to have a massive teen, preteen gang problem in Glasgow, which was like, you know, and it was extraordinary. It was all down to what state you lived on, what tag you put on your wall. And, um, and we really got to know, and I was really enjoying just getting to know different types of gangs. I, I, it was, it was, I just got a, became a little bit obsessed with it. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Because it's, it's just so interesting. Um, actually, with Glasgow, the funny thing was when we went to see their tag, they put a brick through our window, <laughs> through, the, through the car window, whilst they'd gone to show us the tag. <laughs> and stole the video camera and the sat-nav from the car. So when I get back to the car, I called them up and said, um, any chance we could have our stuff back? 
<laughs> and he said, uh, we can give you the sat-nav for 50 quid, but we've already sold the video camera. <laughs> I said, guys, I'm coming back to interview tomorrow. You've given me your phone numbers. You know, why would you do this? He said, why would you leave your car parked on our estate and not expect us to do that? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, uh, yeah, so then, so then I went to Los Angeles. And, yeah, we just, we, you know, there was just... Um, it was mostly there were shoot there were shootings so there was one shooting we went to but the police were literally terrified to go into these areas and you almost like wouldn't get out of the car so there'd be a report to shoot i mean they would they they would get out of the car and they maybe go and speak to someone and it was sometimes it would just be someone tried to shoot someone so that the i didn't um i didn't see anyone get shot but there was times when they would just go this uh gang member is in the wrong is in the wrong district and they'd pull them over and they just almost like take their shirts off and see what tattoos they had to you know show what affiliation they had say, well, what are you doing here you're not supposed to be here you're supposed to be in this area and they might just sort of like um pull them over cuff them up and take them down to the station just to find out what they're doing in in that in that area and it you know it was there was no there was no police um operation in there that where they wouldn't be wearing kind of full body armor um to go and see you know what was going on and then we looked at the prisons and some of the kind of prison riots that had happened based around gang affiliation and we got sort of cctv footage from pelican bay and places like that where there was like proper full-on kind of and it seemed like the whole thing i mean you probably know better than me but it seemed like what we learned was that the whole thing was basically being run from the prisons yeah the drug gangs have come out the, the, it started in prison these gangs and now there's just massive drugs and murder for hire businesses across the whole country. Mm. And again, that is because the profit of the black market in drugs has been the biggest thing that criminals can make money off in the history of the world, created by drug laws. Yeah, Escobar could source coca paste for like $60 a kilo when he was starting, and it was going for 60000 a kilo in America in the 70s. And... Um, yeah. So it doesn't matter who you arrest. Escobar, Chapo. That price has that price has come down now. Hasn't oh it? yeah. Massive. I used to be able to get it for about 12 from Mexico. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was back in the 90s, late 90s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, cuz cuz I was thinking in the 90s it was around about in, L in London it probably be about what 45. That was massive, wasn't it here the price? And then it sort of yeah. slowly came down. And we looked at the that it was um well certainly i um for the national crime agency believed that it was quite a lot to do with the albanian from the european market the albanians making direct routes into colombia so not going through the kind of um um you know the, the kind of wholesalers in antwerp and and places like that but actually kind of making up their own links and then just basically cutting out the middleman and cutting out a lot of the um Basically, undercutting the market, yeah, so that they could kind of control the um, control the cocaine market in the UK. It's all about the distribution network, isn't it? The wholesale importation system. Yeah. What 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 do you know about that? The wholesale importation. Well, we well, I mean, that was. I, I mean, I looked into that a little bit, but it di it did look to me like well, well, I mostly spoke to the National Crime Agency about this, um, and T Tony Sagas, used to be in command of looking at that particular side of things, and his. 
uh, his take on it was that the reason it had changed was because the Albanians had come in and managed to every year sort of t cut um, a little bit more and a little bit more off the price, the wholesale price, um, by forging their own relationships with the cartels in Colombia. Um, and and then just passing that on to the end user. But I don't think I don't think the Albanians have a huge street network. I mean, if you start with, there's not that many of them. You know, they're quite there's quite a small number of uh, you know Albanians in the UK compared to. I mean, I'm not sure what it is post Brexit actually, but compared to say the Polish community. Um, although, funnily enough, the Albanian community have the second biggest prison population mm. in the UK after of of of, of foreign nationals. Is it the second biggest? Yeah. After what's the first? After then? Polish. After Polish. But there's about a million Polish people in in the UK as opposed to, well, there was when I last looked at it, as opposed to like minimum, much much fewer than that. I mean, it's, so it's disproportionate then. Very disproportionate. But you think about it, they, they I mean, uh, there's many many. Let's just get this straight. Many legal uh, Albania, legally working Albanians working in all sorts of fields in the UK, um, but they did come in. Um, you know, there was quite a big influx after the Kosovo war um, where um, there was people from Albania who claimed to be Kosovo Albanians who, who came in as refugees. And there was quite a big um, people trafficking um, prostitution network set up by them and also cannabis. It's a lot of cannabis grown there. And I think they—I think they just simply thought, you know, if we're if we're already importing cannabis in, and we're already, you know, got other things being brought into the UK, then well, we may as well get involved in the, in the cocaine market because that's that's really lucrative. So, what's the shipping route from Colombia then? Uh, well, it's normally uh, quite a lot of it. Well, there's so many different ones, but I mean, the the, the classic is perishable goods. So, um, put your put your cocaine. In a shipment of bananas or coconuts or, um, or not coconuts, um, pineapples. Pineapples is a good one because they just hollow them out and put them in the pineapples. And you either have a legit business that you run alongside your cocaine business, or you have what's called rip in, rip out, where you have a corrupt officials in the ports in Antwerp who will then pull out your dodgy batch of pineapples. Um, and then there'll be either what's called coopering where the boat will come near to the UK and then a, a sh another smaller vessel will come out from the UK to meet. And there's been quite a lot of recent drug seizures of coopering of yachts where, you know, several large consignments of cocaine have been, um, I think one quite recently worth about 50 million um, off the coast of Cornwall and another one in Aberdeen. Um, where you know they've just basically met a small ship, met a bigger ship, and then taken the consignment in. Um, and there's still some who will try the direct route. There was quite a recent case of a group who were uh, mixed nationality who hired a plane. Did you hear about this one? Mm -hmm. Hired a private jet and um, pretended they were. Um, officials for a rock band of some description um, uh, landed um, in Colombia, 
had managed to have a corrupt um, set of baggage handlers and security officials meet them and go through a whole kind of fake security um, sort of show for everybody else to make it look like they were being checked. Um, then hired these um, armored vehicles or whatever to go and collect all the drugs. <laughs> brought, them back, brought them back, went through the same process again with their theater of the um, pretend um, checking you're seeing all your bags. And obviously by this stage, the suitcases are full of, um, full of, full of drugs. And then drove, just flew straight back into private air, airport in the UK. And they'd done this, and they'd done it at least once before, before they got, stu before they got caught. And whether they'd done it as a dry run, they don't know, but they know they did it once before. And yeah, they basically pretended they were um, the management for some touring rock band. <laughs> and if you want more on the coke roots, then we recently interviewed Andrew Pritchard. I think it's called 100 Million Coke uh, Deal Kingpin. And he had a whole team of UK border agents in his pockets. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, came out of his well, trial. Some, some, yeah, there were some baggage handlers at Heathrow who were uh, caught. I mean, that's one of the things they're talking about. You know, there's lots of corruption in Antwerp, obviously, and, and there has to be for this whole thing to work. But in the big kind of the Dutch ports, and, you know, one of the things that um, Tony Sagas talks about is with Brexit, that corruption has to move to the UK shores. So you're going to have to have more corrupt officials because poss quite possibly some of these routes will now have to be more direct um, for your bananas and your... You know, to avoid you know all the, mm. the customs checks and all the rest of it um, going through Europe. So, you know, does does, does Brexit mean that we'll have um, more corruption and more violence? And I don't know. That's a theory from. Have Tony you read Sales. Saviano's books? No, I haven't. No. He describes how the coke always keeps flowing and the money always keeps flowing. Everything it comes into contact with, it corrupts. Every, there's always somebody in the profession that will be corrupted by that money to keep it all flowing. Yeah. It does seem to be the case, doesn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, the, 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 the key thing is, is if there's a market, isn't it? Well, I mean, it, it was Milton Friedman who warned George H.W. Bush what would happen, the economist. If you've made worthless plants more valuable than gold, hmm. it's an iron law of economics. It's always going to flow, no matter who is arrested. The profit percent is too great. Hmm. I think more recently, Richard Branson and um, The Economist have all spoken out about this, but the government continues to maintain the status quo. So, Well, we were saying, we, 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 there was one case of uh, this Albanian kingpin who got caught um, in um, uh, the UK, and I think the court case was a couple of years ago now. Um, and he was using um, lorry drivers to get the drugs in. Um, and they were being paid you know, 20 grand a time. Now, if your salary is 30,000 pounds a year and you're being paid 20 grand for one trip, it's tempting, isn't it? It's tempting and there's a never-ending supply of people who are going to do it mm. to keep everything flowing. Yeah. All right, then. So you mentioned the scoreboard. Yeah, so the scoreboard is, um, is well... When I was talking about that case in Ipswich, that's what the gang would sing about. They'd sing about scoring like number 23. Michael Jordan's number 23. He keeps scoring goals in, 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 in basketball. And he, 
Um, and w when I first heard about the case, I was thinking, why, why are they talking about scoring goals? And what's, what are they talking about? What's that got to do with selling drugs? Anyway, then I read up about this case in um, South London, a guy called Raheem Butt. Have you ever heard of him? Uh, he was shot in, um, he was from a gang called Moscow 17. And I think their rivals are car, something like Zone 2, something like that. Um, and they're quite, they're Moscow 17, quite renowned, nasty gang. Well, whether he was a member or not, and this, that would be disputed. He was certainly in their drill videos. Now, some people will always say, well, you know, that doesn't mean he was selling drugs or anything like that. But what he did do was he sung about the scoreboard. And he said, you know, how are you going to score points again, against us? And they would sort of list off the number of people who from the rival gang who they've, lit, lit, they've, you know, either slashed or shot or, you know. And so it emerged that there was this scoreboard amongst London gangs and some of the youth workers told me that it was it was as blunt as you know five points for a stab in the leg you know 10 points for a stab in the chest 50 points for a stab in the neck and there was a literal scoreboard and um this is the gamifying of drag you know gang violence isn't it this is call of duty um they you know you've been playing this game in your bedside late at night, um, and now you can play it on the streets with your gang. And um, yeah, that's the scoreboard. And I, I found there were, you know, parents I spoke to who said that their kids, if their kids had been murdered, that um, the brother had been told, oh yeah, we got some points for, you know, whatever rival gang. And that seemed to be a thing. <laughs> And so part of the possible motivation for the murder of Tavis Spencer in Ipswich was, you know, these guys had sung about scoring on the scoreboard and they thought, well, let's go. I mean, obviously they've been humiliated in a, show, in a soap shop, but, you know, were they also, is it also part of this kind of let's go and score some points? Um, yeah, so, and that, um, it's, you know, certainly in South London, there's been you know some kind of serious, um, a bit like actually used to be in the day in Glasgow, where they would literally just meet up for a fight, you know, and it would be this kind of almost well, clockwork orange style um, dystopian violence, and police would describe turning up at the scene and they thought they'd been like some kind of terrorist attack or something because there's just people lying all over the floor with, um, you know, bloodied wounds. And people chalking up their chalking up their scores. So that's just a I, that's just a, a thing that I think we ought to be aware of as a society that this subculture exists. And maybe it's a small thing that not everybody's doing, but the fact that we can have young kids turning um, violence into a game like that is just says something about where we're up to now. And they've always said there's no correlation between video games and violence. How silly we are to think that. Yeah. All right. So we've interviewed a lot of people who've got out of prison, like older. They went in young and came out much older. Yeah. And they talk about the younger generation coming in in this day and age. Back, you know, the armed robbers, beginning of the drugs, there was like a bit of a moral code, but it's completely disintegrated. Yeah. And they say these youngsters come in now just completely cold. They've killed people. 
they didn't have a care in the world out on the streets. They thrown their lives away. They got life sentences. And um, trying to fathom how to help these kids turn their lives around. So to do that, you got to understand the psychology of them, yeah. of the modern gang member. Yeah. And you wrote a whole chapter on that. Yeah. So what is the psychology of the modern gang member? Well, very different to your old school, what you were just talking about. Can I tell you my, my best ever yeah. crime story? Just, yeah, just yeah, please it, do. Which has got nothing to do with anything yeah. that we're talking about. Go for it. <laughs> old school. I was, before I was a journalist, I, was, I went to this um, arts installation in Serpentine in, in Hyde Park. And there's this young artist there and I got talking to him and then his dad got talking to me and I must have spoken to him about five minutes about, um, you know, he was talking about the search for El Dorado and how uh, you know, criminals would, um, you know, have this mentality of um, almost like adventurers and that they were, uh, that criminals were, yeah, sort of, the, yeah, the modern day sort of pirates of the world, you know, that, that all they really wanted was that one big, that one big hit, that last big job, you know, that was all it was all about. I had no idea who this this guy was until until I sort of said, "Who? So who are you?" And he said, "I'm I'm I'm Bruce Raymond." Uh, um, sorry, Bruce Reynolds. Bruce Reynolds. Um, I said, "I, I don't. I've never heard of him." I'm Bruce Reynolds. I, I masterminded the great uh, train robbery. Oh yeah, that that Bruce Reynolds. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I had this amazing conversation with the man who masterminded the great train robbery <laughs> and he like you when he was in prison read a lot and um he talks a lot about don't you know was it worth it in a way for him you know he said i i deeply regret the time i spent in prison because it was you know for him it was i think it was 10 years of his life got sentenced to 25 i think he went i think he ended up spending 10 and then he'd also had a whole period of his life on the run right so and he deeply regretted that somebody died in the in the what had happened uh, in the great train robbery um but he couldn't quite get over the fact that he kind of loved that world and that, that through his crime he you know he had become something um, but it just struck me that he talked about this search for El Dorado. Because I think even now, the kids of today have that image of crime. We all read crime books. We watch crime on TV. We, you know, we, we have a glamorized image of it that you know, it'll lead you out of um, a better life. But if you actually look at the psychology of gang members, the one thing that they most have in common is mental health problems mm. and actually they have both got into gangs because they have mental health problems and being in gangs aggravates those mental health problems mm. and um, there was a fascinating psychologist I met who used to work on um, children who'd been through uh, trauma of um, war it's like Rwanda, she'd worked in Rwanda. She'd worked with kids who'd been caught up in, um, their families been killed in earthquakes, that sort of thing, like really deep-seated trauma. And she came back and she worked with some gang gangs in London. She said, I've never seen anything quite as bad as these kids. I mean, they are just as bad as the kids I'm dealing with in these war zones, in these terrible places. They are deeply psychologically damaged. And it might be that they've been damaged to start with 
by domestic violence at home, you know, abandonment, um, you know, seeing stuff on the streets um, that, you know, you, you, you may have seen, but I haven't seen my best friend get stabbed to death on the street. You know, th these kind of things. I have seen kids. I have actually seen a guy nearly bleed to death on the streets, and it's pretty darn traumatic. And, you know, but if it's your best friend or if it's, you know, so, and so they become hypervigilant and the, and, and they, you know, she said, I'd interview these kids and they'd be, they'd always have to sit facing out, you know, the room. They couldn't have their back to the door. If you walk down the street, they're looking around, they're looking in the wing mirrors of the cars to see who's following them. They're constantly on it. And if you are living like that, it does your head in, it messes you up. And these kids you know, one of the th you know, so she, she essentially said, look, you can kind of, you can kind of figure out who's likely to fall into gang membership, who's going to fall into county lines and that sort of thing, pretty early on, if they've got certain factors. And she sort of went through it. Actually, drug, you know, drug taking wasn't a huge one. It was more, you know, family, you know, parents together, the things you'd expect, you know, the environment they live in, have they witnessed X, Y, and Z. And if they had sort of seven of the 15 factors, you could work out, you know, by the age of eight, you could work out if this person was in a high risk category. And essentially what she's saying is, if you can work that out that early on, then direct your funds, you know, your public money towards those kids. It's like a pension, put the money in early, you know, get to those kids young and literally everywhere along the line I went, whether it was uncle, you know, I'd say, uncle, how do you, how do you stop this? He said, get to the kids young before I get to them. You know, you got to get, you got to get, you got to get in there really early because that's where the problems start. And if you can, you know, and there are projects where I've done projects in America where, you know, you've invest, you've isolated the kids who you think have got potential problems of post-traumatic stuff that's had early, happened early in their lives. Well, they have difficult upbringings, um, and they've worked out. You know, you know some of those projects where they've they've worked out that actually the money they invest in those projects comes back either in the fact that they haven't then had to put this person into prison for the rest of their lives and pay for them that way, or that that person has actually become, you know, a useful member of society and pays tax and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I think the psychology of it, understanding that. Vast, bar, I mean, I think I heard someone in a podcast saying the number of people in prison is like eighty percent of prisoners or something have mental health problems. It, it's 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 the same with um, with the young kids in gangs. They've often gone into those gangs because um, they've got some mental instability, and it's that's that that that's a, that, I think the psychological aspect is something we should be aware of because what what is going on in the young kid's head that he's willing to plunge a knife into another young kid. There's got to be something wrong. And what are we seeing? The government shutting down youth centres and making it worse. We need to give the kids something to do. So you did just... You know what? It's not just giving something to do. Youth centres come with youth workers. Mm. And what you need is guys on the ground. And actually, um, the former children's commissioner, um, um, his name I just got forgotten. I can't clean it out of my head, said that you need to... Um, you know, we had this program to get lots of teachers teach first. Well, we, we, we basically just said we were short of teachers. We need to train up teachers very quickly. We need to kind of 
um, you know, it's almost like a national crisis. We need to get this going. So we're going to have grants. We're going to encourage people to do it. Um, they need to do that with youth workers. They need to get you know a national program that says, right, we need guys on the streets who kids can go to, who they can look up to. And yes, install them in youth projects. There was research by a select committee uh, a couple of years ago that looked at the correlation of knife crime and the shutting down of youth centers. And the areas that had shut down the most youth centers had the highest rises in knife crime. It's a simple, you know, I mean, that, that sometimes these things aren't necessarily connected, but there did look to be a correlation. So all this money being pissed away on the war on drugs that's achieved nothing could be going to open youth centers, more youth centers, and do exactly what you just proposed, have people mentoring you know the kids and doing giving them far more options in life than just running around the streets where they get recruited well you talk in the book about lethal absence of hope yes i like that and expression that's it's, it's um that's that's your problem yeah you just dropped in the conversation there that you were present when someone was almost bled to death on the streets. Yeah. How did you manage to get in that circumstance? Uh, that was when I was doing the stuff on gangs in Glasgow and we went out with a stab unit. Um, and the, back in the day before, and that's what Glasgow did. You know, they really did just go, right, we're going to put youth projects, youth workers in all the centers and areas where there's a problem. This, But uh, before they did that, in fact, they were just starting to do it when I went out and did the stuff when I got my car smashed into. Um, I think the night before or the night after that, I went out with the police and we went and we and we were just going around and it was weirdly they said it's a really quiet night. You know, when someone says that, something's gonna happen. And then <laughs> yeah. And then they, we got called to this um stab scene and um there was a guy there just on the ground and he'd been stabbed in the neck. And all the young kids around, you know, and they'd taken their tops off and shoving it into his neck. Um, similar similar scene to the one I saw in Camden actually with the Somali guy and they're just trying to shove the, the bung the hole up which is all you can do and if, if, if someone's stabbed in there and you know you know if someone's bleeding I'm, you know, I've done my hostile environment course you know pressure is everything you've got to get the pressure on especially if it's arterial you've got to get, get the pressure on the artery to stop the blood um, coming out and that's that's what these guys were doing um and a couple of years later, I called up the guy, the, the, the guy's family, and, and I interviewed him. He survived, but he was brain damaged, mm. you know, and that's, and uh, it, it was, I was a stabbing over a girl, I think. Over a girl, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think it was over a girl. But it was all about, you know, the rival little, ga the little gangs and the, and it, you know, it's, I very rarely, I very rarely seen a stabbing that isn't over something trivial. So we've talked about the economics of this then. My thing is with writing about Escobar, I learned that worthless plants become tens of thousands when you're selling them in the kilos on the streets of America. And um, you've talked about middle-class drug users being part of the demand side. Yeah. What's your perspective on that? Uh, my perspective is it isn't just middle-class drug users anymore. But it was, but it isn't now. Um, I, I mentioned that in the book because there'd been a lot of stuff where I think Sajid Javid, the Home Secretary, had said, you know, middle class users are directly responsible for, you know, knife crime on the streets. And I think Greg Hans had said something similar. I think the police commissioner of the time had, 
perhaps said something similar. I can't remember, but it was it was an, it was an ongoing theme, you know, that we needed to point the finger at the middle class. And I think that that's there's there's fair enough on one point, and the, and the, the point is, and it was a point made by a police officer to me. When we talk about the middle class, we talk about the people who have a conscience about what coffee they drink or whether they're going to use a certain type of coffee cup, um, but yet they don't think about the fact that you know one certain amount from every penny they pay on their cocaine wrap is going to go to um, trafficking women or mm. you know or exploiting children or, or all the other things that are wrapped up in the drug trade. So I don't think about that. And the other um, you know accusation on the middle class is I suppose the university students who go and campaign for all sorts of different things to do with the rights of the individual but you know are still doing their drugs and maybe they don't think about the impact that 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 is having on um the things i've just mentioned so it's the hypocrisy that i think was the politicians are trying to point to um but to say oh it's the middle class cocaine users who are um causing the problem i mean i think there was an advert um from columbia which had a it was i, I remember speaking to columbian government about it because we were talking about going over there and they were going to make an advert i don't know if they ever made it of a guy a banker snorting a roll of uh, some cocaine up his nose and then he lifts up the banknote and it fires a bullet and hits some guy in <laughs> in colombia as a kind of yes show people what's going on here as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed when i was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming i wish i had used indeed if you need to hire you need indeed Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Um, but of course, as you'll note, with county lines, most of the cocaine is turned into crack cocaine. And their biggest part of their industry is, is actually their regular lower class junkies who are so that's the big part of their industry um and secondly that even kind of pure cocaine is now as far as we can see an everyman drug um and if you talk to um the various drug rehabilitation um charities and so on and so forth they will tell you that most of their clients come from all walks of life and it's not you know it's not a middle class problem so it's it's perhaps it's perhaps wrong to kind of emphasize that the middle classes are responsible for all that's going on with their cocaine use, but it's also probably fair to say that they are slightly hypocritical if they're kind of, you know, going fair trade on their bananas. <laughs> <laughs> 
Because in the very beginning, it was like Coke was for rock stars and millionaires, and yeah, you go back to like the seventies. A lot of people stuff, tell me, you know, the explosion of it. it when, I, when I was interviewing people at Cocaine Anonymous, um, they were talking about, you know, oh, Patsy Kensett, you know, she'd walk out with a bit of Coke under her nose, and she's going off to Snogley and Gallagher, and you know, that that was really cool, you know, and and that. You know, cocaine had that really cool image, and th those addicts who I met, um, a lot of them talked about that's that's what got them into it. It was just that idea of it being really kind of quite, quite, you know, quite cool thing. But they, if I don't know if you've ever been to one of these groups, it was unbelievable, unbelievable. I mean, uh, obviously it's anonymous, so I'm not going to say who who who's in there, but the stories are astonishing. You would have um, a person who would be talking about buying night goggles because they were paranoid about who was in the bedroom and um, looking through keyholes. Like someone said they spent like just the whole night looking through the keyhole <laughs> to try to work out who was coming. And another one sort of said they had to time their sleeps by the washing machine. It's just really strange behavior. They would all just, because they're in a group of people who all understand each other, all this stuff comes out. But then someone will say, yeah, last week I was, um, I was stood on the edge of a bridge and I was going to kill myself. You know, but that person, what, what I love about Cocaine Anonymous is that person probably wouldn't tell anybody else, but he's just told a whole room of people. And the reason he's told them is because they've just in, in, admitted to all the embarrassing rubbish that they've done over the years of their life. <laughs> and it's just unbelievable. I, I honestly, I would, even though I don't have to worry about it, I would happily for, a, for an afternoon's entertainment mm. go to a Cocaine Anonymous meeting because they're all fabulous people all trying to deal with a problem that they have. And the brutal honesty in the room is fantastic. So again, um, another point of there is that the pro proliferation of drugs into all sections of society over time is a function of the economics of the business. And I interviewed a psychiatrist, I think, out of Canada recently. Yeah. And he said because of the deaths of fentanyl and the proliferation of that, he just wished they could go back to the good old days of heroin. <laughs> How sad is that? That's true. <laughs> yeah why because what it's less addictive or well every year the drug market expands yeah the cost goes down and the product gets stronger yeah. and it reaches more sections of society so as it gets stronger what we're seeing with the fentanyl and stuff look at all of the deaths that are being caused around that product now so how bad well, is that it that's what responsible for one of the big mass lots of deaths in in scotland that i was talking about their death rate had a big spike last year and i think part of it was because of a batch of fentanyl in in one area i think if you look back at the papers there was a lot of people died because of it so in the competitive black market run by criminals the stronger the product the, the more you maximize your profits so it's just mm. it should just keep getting stronger now as it has done for decades until it gets so bad, we've got to do something about it. Mm. They stopped alcohol pro prohibition after 10 years, mm. but they've just let this keep going. Yeah, interesting, interesting way of looking at it. I haven't looked at the, the prohibition thing, definitely. 
my daughter's been studying prohibition in America. And she's Capone, saying exactly the Al same Capone, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Criminality. Yeah, yeah, totally. So you did try to get through to some politicians about this, including the Home Secretary. She read extracts from your book. So the book was serialized in the mail, on in, in the Daily Mail. Congrats. There it was. And um, uh, about two days into the serialization, um, Priti Patel's special advisor gave me a call and said, will you come in and see her? Um, she's been reading it. And I gave her the book. And she read it in about two days. And um, she invited me to go and, on, a, on a raid with her. I'd been on plenty of police raids before. Um, but yeah, no, I had a conversation with her because she said, look, you know, come in, I want to talk about it. Because she'd not long been Home Secretary then. She said, look, this is a, an albatross around my neck. Um, the whole issue of county lines. I've inherited this problem. I want to deal with it. So I thought, well, fair enough, you know, if I'll happily talk to you about it. And I, um, so we didn't talk about whether or not drugs should be legalized. But what we did talk about was what I've been telling you about the psychology of the kids, getting to them young, setting up the youth projects, getting the investment in, um, you know, nothing stops a bullet like a job. Opportunity, opportunity, get rid of the lethal absence of hope. And that's what, and she said, what about policing? Um, and two, I, I think we have to give them credit um, that, you know, they have over lockdown managed to take out a large section of the number of lines, the known lines. I think what we know is that the market's still there and that they will be replaced. And certainly, for example, the six kids who got locked up in, in Suffolk, um, as soon as those guys weren't selling drugs anymore, there were two guys from Barry St. Edmunds who turned up. One of them ended up stabbing a drug dealer and young kid goes to prison um, for, um, for murder. So um, that kind of carousel of young people who are willing to get involved in this is ever present and everybody knows it. Um, so I think that um, the Home Secretary seems to have a good handle on the policing aspect of it and trying to do that. I'm not convinced yet we've seen the evidence that they're going to kind of deal with seriously the social um, side of things and the, the, you know, the what um, the um, Anne Longfield, Children's Commissioner, was suggesting to me was not just that we get a kind of army of social workers, but that we put the top sort of 50 areas that are in serious trouble and special measures. And over the summer holidays, which is when a lot of these kids go missing, we keep the schools open. We find out ways of, you know, we force the schools to stay open and provide um, activities for these kids who aren't getting activity need. I, I mean, we're talking a much bigger scale project than even what Marcus Rashford is suggesting around free school meals, but actually, you know, free school activities and stuff like that to keep these kids occupied and, and, and to steer them away and to give them some good role models um, from, you know, because if a guy who's selling drugs and pushing people out to the suburbs to do his dirty work, work for him has the audacity to call himself uncle and sees himself as the uncle of these kids 
um, then that's a pretty sad indictment on society. So, yeah, I think uh, you know. Hopefully, they can do more than than the, the, on that side of things. Um, and uh, and that's what we talked about. But she's focused on the policing. Well, what's the name? Patel. Pretty Patel. Pretty Patel and her colleagues. You are addressing the symptoms, <laughs> not the cause. Can't you see decades of policing has not affected anything? More drugs, stronger, more deaths, more violence, knife crime across London, hundreds of thousands dead in Mexico. What is it going to take to get through to you to address the root cause? And the principal cause is drug laws have made worthless plants more valuable than gold. And it is the biggest profit incentive in the history of the world for organized crime to flood the entire world with drugs. And so you guys take over that market and take it out of the hands of the criminals. This is going to keep getting worse. But you just pass it off to the next administration and say, oh, I inherited this problem. What can I do about it? Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> it's your show. <laughs> so you're saying that some of the county lines were taken down during the pandemic. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it, you know, it was obviously a difficult time for them. You, you know, a kid traveling on a train is going to stand out, right? Um, I mean, I, I heard stories of them dressing kids up as key workers. Um, yeah. And that London, sort of thing. Yeah. But what you're going to see now is, you know, um, I think what, what, what people are worried about is that, you know, there's a lot of people have their businesses impacted. And um, so if you're, a, if you're a taxi driver and, you know, and, 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 and a small town in the UK, um, and someone says, can you courier some kids around me because you're not getting much business doing anything else right now, then you might be more tempted to do it. So there's, the, you know, the, the econ I think the economics of the lockdown and the pandemic is possibly going to feed into fueling the industry um and i think there there will be worries and concerns around that and as far as i can see it's you know everything's just back to business as normal post lockdown so what's this daniel morgan situation daniel morgan okay um so this is completely nothing to do with county lines okay, but your uh, producer said do you want to talk about it because i've been uh, involved in the daniel morgan case daniel morgan very quickly summarize is uh killed in a car park with an axe in the head in 1987 uh, he was a, a private investigator um he ran uh, a small private investigations firm um his um business uh partner uh, jonathan reese was drinking in the pub with him when he left um he um was the the Basically, the um, family believed that he was on the verge of um, exposing a massive police corruption scandal. And since 1987 until now, um, there's been, I think, five investigations into his murder. Um, there's never been a criminal conviction, um, but it has been um, a thorn in the side of every Metropolitan Police Commissioner that's in, since since the murder of, of Daniel Morgan um, over allegations that basically the whole investigation was corrupt. And um, so last week I was, uh, was it last week or week before, at the inquiry, which has been taken eight years 
into his murder to find out whether indeed there was corruption. And at the end of that inquiry, um, the independent team said that uh, it wasn't just corruption at that time, but that actually the um, Metropolitan Police is inherently corrupt. Um, <laughs> and they pointed the finger at the current um, commissioner, Cressida Dick, um, because when she was assistant commissioner, they felt that she obstructed the inquiry by not helping them enough to get hold of files and documents. So the reason this all goes back to why was this, why was this particular murder considered corrupt is because um, the one of the uh, investigating officers who was charged with the case eventually became a suspect. Um, so uh, the, it's a very complicated case, but essentially there were allegations made against um, him um, and um, Sid Fillory and Jonathan Reese, who was the partner, the business partner, um, that they had somehow been involved in it. Now it has to be said, that when they were eventually charged and it went to court, um, the court case collapsed and that they actually got damages against the Metropolitan Police for malicious um, charges. So what um, essentially this inquiry was looking at is, you know, was there corruption involved? Um, and they said, yeah, the whole thing was, um, you know, full of corruption um, from start to finish. So, for example, you had the man who was, it, it all plays into the relationship between private investigators, the media, and the police. So if you have a police officer who's investigating the case, who is friends with one of the suspects and actually interviews that suspect, and doesn't declare that he is the friend of that suspect, um, and later becomes the business partner who replaces the guy who's been murdered, um, then it... <laughs> there's a conflict of interest. It, there's a little <laughs> bit of a conflict of interest going on. Um, and even, this report found that even after Jonathan Reese was declared a suspect, he would be down the pub with the cops, drinking with them, because they were mates. And then when you throw into the um, into the mix that Daniel Morgan was potentially about to expose um, a scandal within the police, um, there was a great deal of suspicion around, hang on a second, why were the forensics so bad on this case? Why didn't they manage to find a single uh, thread? They didn't find any DNA. They didn't find any, you know, nothing to link the killer. Um, you know, they took only four or five photographs at the scene. They, um, they didn't cordon off the area. Um, all this came out in the inquiry. You know, the, 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 the whole investigation into this private investigator was very substandard. And it could be that they just, it was just a terrible investigation. Um, but when you've got one of, the, one of the suspects almost like just hand in glove with the investigation, I mean, he even went. Um, there's, a great, there's a great documentary on Channel 4 called Murder in the Car Park. It's brilliant. It's got all the key players. It's got all the suspects being interviewed. Um, it's got the, the family. And it just plays through uh, the whole thing. And it shows how 
Jonathan Rees was was you know too closely involved in investigation for someone who was then you know a suspect and the last guy to see last man he was drinking in the pub with this guy when he went out to the back of the car park and got 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 axed in the head but what it, it was almost as bad was the fact that they then said this this inquiry team said that it wasn't just the initial investigation but actually when there was an investigation into the investigation by Hampshire police so a separate police force that too was not independent so having tried to deal with the fact that there might have been corruption they're essentially saying that the corruption spread and then they said even when we did our invest you know years later when we're trying to get access to what they call the Holmes um, directory, which is the kind of police directory that has all the files on this case, they were being blocked. And they were saying, look, you know, uh, actually, the assistant commissioner at the time was Cressida Dick, and she wasn't helping us. And we're here to try and be an independent, and we, we can't get hold of this stuff. Um, now, the Metropolitan Police say that they were helping, so I should say that Metropolitan Police say that obviously that they did try and assist with this inquiry. Um, but the allegation from an independent panel that Metropolitan Police was institutionally corrupt, you know, was a really stuck with um, them. And I, I, I interviewed um, um, the Assistant Commissioner after this report came out, and he, he said, look, we're not, you know, I don't think we are. So they are saying that we don't agree with this. We essentially don't agree with this. And I don't think there was a question mark over, well, would, would Cresta Dick keep her job? I, it does look as if um, the people you know who decide whether she keeps her job or not, such as the mayor of London and the Home Secretary, they have confidence in her. So I don't think she's going to go. But what might change is... I think there might be a kind of call for more transparency amongst police officers to declare their interests, especially around we, you know, there's often been concerns around sort of Masonic interests and stuff like that. We've had a few you know, cops on that have been Masonic. If you're investigating someone, for example, who's in the same lodge as you, that that's obviously, you know, that should be declared. You know, that's the sort of thing <laughs> where you know you, you need to you need to know. I'm not saying that's relevant to this particular case. But that was one of the recommendations. You know, police officers, they need to be a register of interests of police officers so that we know um, if there's any conflicts when they're investigating a case, that sort of thing. And I think the other thing they were really concerned about was whistleblowers. So if someone actually came out and said, look, you know, there's corruption here, um, they, they this report very damningly said, look, actually what often happens is they're either told to move on, um, you know, they get bullied or intimidated or they get hounded out of the force and you know uh, again this is the finding of the independent review it's not me saying this, this is what the review team says they're not got a proper system in place for whistleblowers and in a case like Daniel Morgan which has still never been solved you know um, that is um, you know that that's that's a real problem because there are people probably who might know what's going on who don't feel they can come forward. But it does tie back to drugs because one of the biggest factors corrupting the police all over the world is, there is a drugs connection. Is the drugs because if you're yeah. a couple of cops going and raiding a house, like you said about the truck driver who can get twenty grand uh, in one pop, and you see fifty thousand in the safe with a bunch of drugs, 
Where's that 50,000 going to go if you're on 20, 30,000, 40,000 a year? Well, look, I, I, I don't know the case well enough to talk about it in huge detail. Yeah. But it's worth looking into for that aspect of it because there was a case that was basically, there was a, a police officer who was known to Daniel Morgan, the, the victim, um, who was um, investigating Brink's map, who about three months later, committed suicide. And he, uh, it's thought, it's been alleged um, quite recently that Daniel Morgan and he were going to sell a story on police corruption to do with the importation of cocaine. So, but again, this is all speculation. Um, we don't know what we don't know what the motive is. It could have been the motive could have been that you know this guy was a, a, a private investigator. He probably had lots of people who didn't like him. It, you know he he was a he was a bailiff. He, uh, you know there were a lot, but whoever you know it wasn't a robbery. He was it, this, his wallet was stolen, but he had a a wad of notes in his pocket that weren't taken. There were some notes that were taken, um, and it's thought possibly even some files removed from his car. Um, so someone didn't go up in, a, in the back of a car park with an axe and just axe someone to death over the head and then nick their wallet. That's not what happened. They didn't do it, they didn't do it for that reason. I think, we can, I think we can safely assume that whoever killed Daniel Morgan wanted Daniel Morgan dead, not just some random bloke who he wanted the wallet from. Um, so it's, I, I urge you to look into the case because it, it, it really is a fascinating uh, sort of corruption story. All right, just one final subject then. Um, uh, before we start on that, though, how long were you a Sky News journalist for? When did you start that? Um, so I uh, started, uh, went to Channel 5 News, which is, was part of Sky News in 2005, and then crossed over to Sky News Pure uh, 2010. So what did you think then about the Jimmy Savile stuff being kept secret for so long? at the BBC. Well, it was a guy called Mark Williams Thomas who did the expose on Jimmy Savile. Um, We've had him in here. Have you? Um, and I met him once to do a story about um, paedophiles and got his advice and seems like a very straight-headed guy. And I think that the problem with Savile was everyone was terrified of him because he used to threaten to sue people and they were all the all the signs looked like they were there didn't they i mean that louis theroux interview where he almost had him on the rails you know um and uh i think it, it was a sign of the times wasn't it i mean so many things um that sort of went on over that time period where people just seemed to turn a blind eye um, are quite extraordinary. I still um, shiver uh, when I look at that footage of um, Savile with um, uh, the, oh god, the, you know the guy who was the um, leader of the pack, uh, the other paedophile. He was um, my, my, my Gary Glitter. Gary Glitter. You seen yeah. that footage of them both on top of the pots together? I've not. No, is it on YouTube? Yeah, it just makes have you, you. Have you seen that one, James? Shudder. Savile and Gary Glitter together. Oh man, it just makes you shudder. But then you kind of, I don't know, do we all expressly in our heads will not want to believe that that kind of thing goes on? You know, it's, it's, 
you know, there's there's part. I think there's part of human nature that. I mean, I met Jimmy Savile. You met him. I met him. Yeah. What was that like? Well, you know, he's like big into running, and he used to. And I had a disabled brother, and I was pushing my brother around the serpentine with my granny, and we were doing a sponsored run, and up comes Jimmy Savile, and <laughs> I guess I would have been quite young. And he's perfectly seemed perfectly nice, and I thought he was the best guy. And he was Jimmy Savile fixes it for everybody, and he seemed like this great guy. And I was just left with this great impression. And I'm sure that most people, if you weren't being abused by Jimmy Savile, had that impression of him. But it really took um, Mark Williams Thomas to to basically forensically go through the cases and find a pattern of behaviour. And it just goes to show because how many victims he had and it, it, you know, it took a documentary to find it was only like five victims that he produced to start with who the patterns were behavior was so similar that eventually, but even then it was only after he died. And I just wonder if he was still alive, you know, whether that would have yet come out because it it's. You know the the rules and regulations about putting something like that on the telly and saying this guy is effectively you've got to you've got to jump some real hurdles to do that. Did you hear anything about Savile hosting weekly lunches for cops and they come into his house and some of them going in rooms with girls? No. Anything about that? No. no. Do you think that Savile it could be repeated or it was something that only could happen in that bygone era? I, th I think never say never. Um, I'm actually looking at a case at the moment um, of a paedophile who um, was convicted in this country of disseminating images. And we're, we're, we're looking very carefully at an issue of paedophiles changing their name by Depol. Mm. And what he did was change his name and I have to say allegedly, because this case hasn't come to court yet in Spain, traveled to Spain, became an au pair under a new name with a new passport that he basically paid 45 quid to change his name to do it. And then uh, went to work for two top schools in Madrid and allegedly took videos of kids at those schools, about 30 or 40 kids. Um, and it was only because there's a, um, a kind of crack unit in Australia that tracks the movements of various people and tracks the accounts of these people said, we've seen this activity of this stuff that looks like it's coming from your school. And they managed to connect it somehow to his, I think when they arrested him to social media feed, um, that not, not, he was obviously doing it on tour, you know, the black market internet site but then he'd have stuff from his phone that he put publicly and they connected the two together um and they arrested this guy and the only reason he was able to do it is because he can spend you know 15 minutes changing his name by depot so that that's a big issue and um sarah champion who's the mp for rotherham who you know has done a lot around the whole child abuse up in rotherham um is currently one of several MPs who have been bringing this up with the new, and trying to get legislation into the crime uh, uh, police crime sentencing and courts bill to say, look, 
you know, we've got to look at this and, and either have a way of saying they can't change their names or if they can change their names, and there might be legitimate reasons why they want to change their names. But, you know, there's an argument. There's an argument that if, if they're trying to move on, you know, it's one way of moving on. But if, if, if they are going to do that, um, then there must be a way of notifying the passport authorities and the DVLA and the police. They have an obligation, they have a legal obligation to do it within 48 hours. But if you're a devious um, sex offender, that's not necessarily going to be your number one priority. And it's not just, yeah, it's, it's, it's not just um, pedophiles, it's, you know, domestic abuse perpetrators, rapists. There's, we've seen, you know, cases of this um, and the Safeguarding Alliance, which is a, a, a very good charity that's looking into this, have, have got lots of evidence of a vast number of um, sex offenders doing this. So it's not quite a direct answer to your could this happen again, because you know, you're probably more referring to, you know, could this be um, something that could happen within an, institution, within an institution like the BBC? Um, I think, I hope that, you know, big institutions have safeguarding processes in place, but do not underestimate how devious some of these people are. That a guy would be that brazen just to change his name, travel to Spain, and just carry on doing it. Do you have any final uh, Savile questions, James? How did we get on to Savile? Yeah. <laughs> we've got a Savile, we've got a Savile documentary coming out. Oh, have you? It's going to be about six hours long. Oh, think. really? Yeah, yeah. But we're, yeah. Wrap, we're wrapping up now. Did you have anything? No? Okay. So, if you have watched... Uh, did you have anything to say in conclusion to the people watching this? Where can they stay, find you? Stay safe. Where can they find you on social uh, media? You can find the, uh, the find the book on Amazon. All the links will it's, be in the description uh, box fabulous, the video. Fa fabulous book. Or you can get it on your Kindle. Um, no audio book yet? Yeah, there's an audio book. You can get it on Good. audio book. Uh, the guy who's reading it is a lot harder than I am. <laughs> So sometimes when I'm quoted, I sound more like this. <laughs> it's not my voice. If I could, I could have done it, couldn't I? I could have just put on the voice. If, um, if people want to contact you on socials, you're on like Twitter. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, Jason Farrell, uh, uh, Jason Farrell Sky. Yeah, there I am. You'll find me. It's been an absolutely delightful uh, afternoon <laughs> speaking to you, Jason. Lovely to talk to you. And um, you know, James has been raving about this book for ages. So for you to finally be here, <laughs> this is like. You're his, um, yeah, what he's, what he's been talking about for so long. Okay. And um, if you've enjoyed it as much as I have, please go down and support Jason's work. Watch you, Sky News. It's very good. Watch Sky News. Check out his book. You yeah. can harass him on the socials. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Don't worry, I get nothing. <laughs> so thank you for watching this today. Thank you to Joe and James for coming out to film it. And huge thank you to all the new subs. Subs logos down there. And most of all, huge thank you to Jason Farrell for coming out today and gracing us with his eloquency. Cheers. Cheers. Good thank to meet you. Much. Cheers. Yes. Brilliant.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.